0: You're listening to the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. This is Ryan Rossello and I doing the 2005 NBA Redraftables. This is the 10th one we've done in this series, dating all the way back to uh, the iconic 1996 draft. My name is Bill Simmons. This is the Book of Basketball 2.0. Gonna <laughs> Blair, she's at three quads playing that D. Lebron hits him with that steel, and you already feel. Pass it to Lucia, yeah. he's gonna juke. Yeah, yeah. It's a book of basketball. 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 Yeah. All, right. Yeah. All right, the two thousand five redraftables. To me, this is the Chris Paul draft. This was when I was really still watching a lot of college basketball and it became clear pretty early that Chris Paul wasn't going to be one of the top two picks and it made no sense. It was illogical. I have a draft diary from that year where I repeatedly said how illogical it was. Even more illogical was that Marvin Williams, who was coming off his freshman or sophomore year at UNC, I can't remember, but didn't start for them. And he went ahead of Chris Paul and all of this was really dumb. This is in general, a really dumb era for NBA, a lot of bad GMs. This is a year later. I wrote the atrocious GM summit for page two. There were so many bad GMs. And I think about this draft and I just think about mistakes and bad moves. What's your first thought when you think of 2005?
1: I have a lot of stuff that I got wrong in this draft, but Chris Paul is not one of them. I loved Chris Paul. Uh, I loved his edge, you know, that's, that became a big thing. And it's still probably one of the most important things for me where I want to see how much you care, not to the point where I would, you know, draft a four year or five year senior, who has a nice run at Michigan State over a top prospect. You know, that that Dick Vitale argument every year in the draft and they still would let him do it used to drive me absolutely crazy. He You know, he would do his Keith Bogan's rant. Like, how do you let Keith Bogan's go to state? Right. And you're <laughs> like, look, I know you love college ball, and I know you love the guys that stay a million years and all that stuff, but that's just actually not the way it works out. Like, you can think GMs are dumb, but the thing they don't get wrong is take younger players instead of older players. Yes, there are mistakes, but the reason they keep taking the younger players is because they're trying to get stars, and generally, that's the way it works and if you're not some rock star at 22 or 23 years old graduating college you're not going to turn into an nba superstar so um, the bogut part remember we're still in the big man world and that's what hurt chris paul even though this whole thing at the top which i know you'll want to get to but i love that paul had attitude and it's an attitude that turns a lot of people off now um but i knew like this guy's a fighter and i loved him yet at the time I still would go, all right, well, Bo gets this really productive big center and you need centers, which sounds funny to say now, but that was just the way business was done back then. And Marvin had had a really nice run as only a freshman at UNC when he came out. So I think there was a a feeling like the unknown of Marvin was still better than a six-foot point guard, which again ends up being a massive mistake. And that's why Paul ended up going where he went. And Pre, why- Pre-advanced metrics, too, because even if you just look... Look,
0: looking at college stats is pretty dumb most of the time. But if you look at his college stats, he plays two years at Wake Forest. Tough conference. He's 15-7-5, basically, in his second year. Both years, three-point line, 46.5 and 47.4. He's just, like, statistically, just looks like I can't miss. And then the eye test backs it up. What's fascinating is... He punched Julius Hodge in the balls in that game. And I think it gave him something of a, of a bad rep. Like he was some sort of head case, which leads us to part two of the inexplicable decision to, to pass up Chris Paul. We'll, we'll cover Atlanta later, but at number three, Portland is sitting there and Chris Paul's on the board. They don't have a, you know, they, they certainly don't have a point guard. You would want to write home about this is a signature guy that they could just build around And they trade down and the read between the lines of why they traded down was they wanted a character guy. They're coming off the whole jailblazers era. And you read the quotes that they said about Martel Webster, who's the guy they traded down three spots for. And it's all like, he's a great kid. He's a real, he'll be a real asset to the community and all this stuff. And meanwhile, like who turned out to be a bigger asset to the community and great kid, all that stuff than Chris Paul you know who is one of the best people you could build a franchise around so that part of it is uh amazing do you remember that though it was it was like he had a little bit of a stigma
1: yeah i felt like that was even overstated though at the time because you know, this is very early on in me getting any intel from people. And it wasn't like Chris was this bad guy. Like you and I have both talked to enough people over the years of doing this, where you don't need to, you, a lot of times you don't even share it all the time. You might just do kind of an eye roll and be like, I don't know, man, there's a lot of dudes around this guy that people don't really like. And it, it's sort of a thing right. that wasn't really the case for Chris. And that's funny too. Cause you go, wait a minute. So what's the knock on him as a community guy? Well, I know that has anything to do with it. The negatives here would be So he's feisty. Yeah, there's shit he does that I think is annoying. I don't like when he backs into bigs in transition and then gets the call. And and he's one of my favorite players of the modern generation. I actually think he's underrated. I think he gets dumped on all the time because he doesn't have the playoff success. And I get it. I get those knocks against him. But the knocks of a a personality or anything, it's like actually the the nastiness is really all in a competitive arena. It's not that he's this horrible dude around campus. So that... I remember the video of being, they had a video of, it was John Nash with Portland at the time, and it was Paul Allen. And they thought like they had pulled the biggest coup ever by adding draft capital and going back and taking a Martell Webster, who I'll tell you out of high school teams did love because of the size and the shooting. And you thought, here we go. But the funny thing is his nice guy thing probably led into him just not having the edge that a Chris Paul has where he's still an all-star 15 years later which is always even better when you do look back at these drafts you go 15 years and look at how he's playing and how many of these other guys have been out of the league for 5 years. Do you remember the trade? Yeah, they move um they move from 3 to 6 and then they add two other firsts. They picked up a late 2000 later
0: 2005 pick and yeah. they picked up a 2006 pick. The three guys they got Portland to trade out of number three and trade down for Webster for six, they get Webster, Linus Kleesa, and then in 2006, Joel Freeland. The lesson is always don't trade down in the NBA draft ever under any circumstances. Now, going backwards, we'll go to Bogut later because that's a whole separate conversation. Atlanta's on the clock at two. They have Al Harrington. They picked Josh Smith the year before, and they have Josh Childress. So, technically, three forwards, kind of
1: hybrid, three, four I mean, forwards. That's, that's <laughs> really, by the way, like, I'm okay with multiple position guys. If you think this is the best player, just go ahead and take them and figure out. That's real wing specific, like, yeah. of, of getting the same guys. I mean, children's left they have the, the country. <laughs> and no point guard. So, Chris Paul's the obvious pick.
0: They take Marvel Williams. And then a year later, they take Sheldon Williams over Brandon Roy. So <laughs> Billy Knight was just determined to take every forward he possibly could. Um, they he gets fired and never never works again. The thing that got me with Marvin Williams from the get go um, was the not starting at UNC. And you know, it's not it, it's not like this was 1989 and Grant Hill at Duke or so 1990 Grant Hill at Duke or something. This is. By 2005, college basketball just isn't as good as it used to be. And if you're supposed to be one of the top three guys in the draft and you're not one of the best five guys on your college team, it's alarming. He gets taken. Some quotes from Jay Billis. Sky is the limit. Unbelievably long. Active athletic. The real deal. The complete package. Active, bouncy athlete. Really long. Wingspan of about seven foot three. And then he said, the thing that makes him special is his range as a shooter. And then when I did the draft I wrote, the only thing missing was couldn't start for his college team. Should it have been a red flag that he didn't start for his college team? I say
1: yes. I'm going to say no, um, because it was Sean May, Rashad McCants, Jawad Williams, who was a senior, really lanky forward, who still got you some buckets, and Raymond Felton, who's a top pick, too. Mm. And then... You know, when I look back at that team, there are, it just was a really good, deep team that won a national championship and beat a really good Illinois team. So it wasn't like he wasn't starting on some 20-win, fifth seed, Big 12 team. And I don't even mean to do that to the Big 12 as it's diminishing. But you're, you're a freshman, it's UNC, it's loaded, it's got older players. It's got a group there that's, what, four or five pros? I mean, there's probably another guy that got a cup of coffee there. I'm just, you know, going off the top of my head. The biggest problem with the Marvin Williams thing is he has the Drew Gooden body deal, where when I watched Drew Gooden in Kansas, I thought Drew Gooden was going to be a different player until then his ass got so big that he became this rebounding, like he just got thick in a away. Where I was like, okay, wait a minute. Drew Gooden is going to be taking people off the dribble. Drew Gooden is not going to be some kind of slasher. He's going to be a big body, box you out. His body is going to develop in a different way. And it wasn't like Drew Gooden was bad. He just... Drew Gooden's a very specific thing for me where I go, his body morphed his game to match the body. And when I say ass and hips, like, that's what Drew had. Marvin... Because he was a freshman and he's skinnier, I think we all tricked ourselves in, just like Bill says, is that think he was going to be this slashing kind of create off the dribble guy. And very quickly, he started filling out in a way where he was going to be glued to the ground a little bit more. And I still think we were in this odd kind of combination thing. So I think his body type and what it ended up becoming was as big of an influence on what his game developed into versus the, the high ceiling version that we thought he was going to be. So that's where I was wrong with Marvin. That's, that's actually a fun separate podcast. We should do Big guys, asses. Who's,
0: <laughs> guys whose bodies became untenable for what they were supposed to be as basketball players. Cause speaking of weird bodies, like Chris Paul, also a weird body, but made it work. Like when you see him in person, he's got a huge ass, but is still able to have all this speed. Marvin Williams was the opposite, big ass, big legs, but just didn't have the same athleticism. I feel like that happened to Derek Williams too. I still have some Derek Williams stock from way back when. Oh, it's just like, as he, oh yeah, I, I was, I was all in on Derek Williams. We'll, we'll cover that at a later redraftables. I, I just thought he was the God perfect
1: just, stretch for, right? I, I think no? Derek Williams, no, no, look, I, I didn't think he was going to be out of the league that quickly. If I look it up, S- something happened. I, I, there's, I'm going to look it up. Cause I think he shot 60% from three in college. Um, in college, in that second year, not the guy I just
0: thought because he also came through in March Madness, too. But I just thought he
1: was like the stretch four everybody was going to need going forward into the 2010s. So, two years at Arizona, second year, 10 11. He's 28 and an assist. And on two attempts from three a game, he shot 57%. And, made and some he big season, nine the tournament free throws too. a game. Yeah. And I'll never forget, I mean, that's just simple. I mean, you don't have to be anti-analytics, but you would just go, okay, wow, he can shoot the three. Like, you wouldn't ever do a scouting report on him and going, he struggles to shoot when you shoot 57% and you're a four. But I remember guys going like, okay, well, you know, maybe he'll shoot 35 or 36. And I remember arguments from people being like, well, if he did it in college, why can't he? like, you know what? He's probably, again, not going to shoot 57%. So I don't I don't blame people for being wrong about Derek Williams. Do you Do you have certain guys that you're just like, Even though it's a loss,
0: I refuse to admit defeat because I'm still that way with Bo Kimball. I still feel like different, different team. It plays out a different way. I still feel like he could have been a 20 point a game scorer. I don't know why it didn't happen, but I still feel like it should have. And I feel that way about Derek Williams. I don't know why it didn't happen. I don't have answers, but I think it should have happened. Whatever he goes to Minnesota. Weird team, weird coach, too many forwards, the whole thing, and then just kind of loses his confidence, and that's it.
1: It's too bad. Um, uh, yeah, no, I definitely have guys like that. And you even mentioned one today on Twitter um, or this past week, Robert Swift. Oh, yeah, you
0: like to You, you own some Robert Swift stock.
1: There was a, a – and Grandy backed me up today with it too. And there's a window of pre-homeless squatting – Robert Swift, where you saw it come together and people use that as like an, I think you were trying to do it as an anti-Ainge thing. And I was kind of surprised out of you. It was a little, it was a little anti angy for your brand. Yeah. I have some regrets,
0: you know, once again, 280 characters, sometimes it doesn't come out perfect. It's more, Ange <laughs> has two non-trades that really, really, really helped him out. And I think that Swift one if that happens and Swift is a disaster combined with the Scalabrini hiring and the Ray Flahfrence trade, all that stuff, I, I think he just gets fired because that that's now insurmountable. Sebastian Telfair was another one, like, but he gets out, gets Big Al. Big Al is at least good enough that he can flip him for KG, and we're off, you know. But the Winslow thing's another one because then they don't get Jalen Brown out of the Winslow thing; they give up four picks for that. Um, but quickly on Marvin Williams. Can I add so, one
1: thing to that, though? I'm sorry yeah. to do that to you. There were people in Boston that thought the Iverson deal was closer to getting done than not getting done. And if the Iverson deal happens, the Garnett deal doesn't happen. And, and you get get him for two years, and then... Right. and and then you have Iverson at the end. And, and you know, what you're not doing is, is raising a banner, although... The anti ange thing is always... So when you did it, I was kind of like, ooh, that smells a little anti ange ish for Bill. No, I'm pro ange It's not as bad as... Yeah, the the all-time worst is I did a radio show one day with Chris Broussard, and he wanted to do Isaiah is actually better than Ainge. And I was like, Chris, we were in a commercial break. I'm like, do you honestly want to do this debate with me? Because I have a master's degree in Isaiah Thomas mess it's ups. terrible yeah. i studied at the college of simmons here i go i get that you may not like Ange, and you're going to bring up a couple of things but this is going to be so devastating to you that you may not get re-signed by espn and i don't know that i want to do that to you because i like you chris can i just say that if they had made the iverson trade i think there's a roadmap
0: to the celtics making the 07 finals <laughs> <laughs> i'm not like Think how what? weak the league. Think how weak the league was in '07, where LeBron makes it with one of the worst teams he ever had. Like Delonte West was might have been the second best guy in the '07 Cavs. It was just the league was wide open that year. And if you had Pierce and Iverson playing well together with just like mediocre teammates, that might have been enough in '07. We'll study the people fifty years from now will be studying the 2007 East, wondering what the hell happened, how how that LeBron team made it. LeBron was like
1: 22. They What's still the would have had to beat the Pistons, though. I mean, what LeBron did against the Pistons, I always joke it's a half a ring. It should count as half a ring for Or them. was
0: that Pistons because, team kind of on the other side? You know? Because at that point, Ben Wallace is gone. I don't know. Uh, quickly on Marvin Williams. He played 36 games in 800 minutes for North Carolina. He took 19 threes out of, and 44 threes made 19 he averaged 11.3 points and 6.6 rebounds a game. If you look at his actual career, he averaged 10.3 points and 5.2 rebounds a game. So it's just weird how it worked out. Anyway, that was a disastrous pick because I think if you... So if they had taken Chris Paul in 05, here's the other thing that happened to them that summer, the Hawks. That was when they traded for Joe Johnson. They traded the two first-round picks. So conceivably, they could have had Joe Johnson, uh, Chris Paul, and Josh Smith. And then you we also missed out on the whole Chris Paul, Josh Smith, alley-oop thing, which would have completely reinvigorated Josh Smith's career. So it's a good what if. Then you go to number three. Utah smartly trades up. They steal this pick from Portland. And you're thinking they're going to take Chris Paul and they take Darren Williams. What What do you remember about that at the time, how you felt?
1: I thought that was the mistake, but that Illinois team was so good. And yeah. I also remember... Remember because they had the three guards. It was Williams, Luther Head, right? Frank Frank Williams was the th- for, now, third one? No, Frank Williams was later. He was Luther he was Head? This, Luther Head. I used Head. to
0: know this stuff. Who was the third one? God damn it. I'm gonna
1: have to now do this.
0: I enjoyed Luther Head. For about five, six, seven years there, Chris Paul versus Darren Williams became a real basketball argument along the lines of Emmett Smith, Barry Sanders, things like that. And people were in separate camps. I was always in the Chris Paul camp. I never left. I was never threatened. Even when Darren Williams had more postseason success early on, I just always thought Chris Paul was better with worse teammates. I really thought w- Darren Williams, situation in Utah was really nice. He had good players around him almost immediately. And he had real success. Um, and then eventually it became a non-argument because for reasons we'll go into later, Darren Williams's career tails off in a really unusual way that I still don't have an explanation for. He goes from he's one of the five or six best guards in the league for a while, and then he's completely irrelevant. And it happens almost
1: overnight, and I still don't understand what happened. I couldn't believe the pick. It was Luther had D. Brown D believe. Brown, Two the other D Brown. Forget, forget that. And I don't want to do the now we've looked at their careers and one guy was done at 29 and Chris Paul still making all-star games and say that yeah, this was a dumb argument. It was a dumb argument when it was happening. And I really think the camps yes. were only Utah Jazz fans and then everybody else. There may have been a couple people here or there that didn't like Chris Paul. But to argue that Darren Williams was the better point guard during those peak Darren Williams years versus those Chris Paul peak years was embarrassing and wrong. And to say like, oh, well, Paul didn't have the same playoff success. What did Williams have? That one year where they got smoked by the Lakers in the Western Conference Finals? Well, they made like, so-
0: they made the 07 Western Finals. And then... Uh- then got smoked by the Spurs. They won five playoff series in two years, which is that's not nothing, you know. And you know, if you look at Williams, we we might as well just do this now. Williams from 2007 to 2013, he's 19 and 10. All his percentages are solid. He makes two second team OMBAs in the playoffs just for Utah. These are his career stats: 21 and 10, 46, 40, 80 percentage splits. So. That's that's about as high level as you're going to get from a point guard. So that there was some legitimacy to it. The problem is, you really think so?
1: I, I, no, no. I, I'm I, saying
0: there's legitimacy to having the argument. I just thought it was absurd. You look at Chris's career. I mean, that it's still going, but four first team All NBAs, three seconds, and a third for his career. Even now, in his advanced age, he's basically nineteen and ten. His percentages are ridiculous. 25 PR for his career is 180 win shares. What's been weird about him is how friendly he is with advan- How friendly he is to the advanced metrics. The advanced metrics like him as much as any basketball poor we've ever had. Whatever he's doing, the advanced metrics are
1: like this is our guy. We love this guy. All right, because he can shoot, and he's even though his usage is not like Peak Westbrook or some of that other stuff, he's just efficient across the board. He just is, but. You know, back then, because, and I'm looking through it again, they beat the Rockets in that seven-game series. They lost, um, all right, you they, about they lost or to the Spurs. I'm talking about Williams here, but the fact that in 2007, yeah. so a couple of years later, you're right, they lose in the five games of the Spurs. They had that good series with the Lakers in 08, and then there was the other series with the Lakers in 2010 where they got swept, and a couple of the games were close, and then, they, but, I mean, again, they still got swept. I just they felt beat the- like it was...
0: They took down the we believe warriors which Baron was a little bit injured at that point but that was still a legitimate win. The Warriors had so much momentum and it really seemed like we were headed for a Warriors Spurs finals and then Utah kind of showed up and <laughs> ruined it. Everyone wanted Warriors let Warriors Spurs. It was like this would be fantastic.
1: I guess I just feel like I'm doing that thing where I have to beat up another guy. I just, I was so, this was one of those arguments where I was so frustrated by it. Because I go, really what we're doing is we're just arguing with a bunch of Utah fans. And the irony of this is that once Darren Williams was gone, no one in Utah cared anymore. And then they weren't arguing that he was better than Chris Paul. Because it's just the way it works. And it's very similar to the irony of the Chris Paul now being on the Thunder thing. Where all Thunder fans would argue Russell Westbrook all day long over Chris Paul. And then they get all of this Westbrook and they get Paul for a year. And now every Thunder fan's like, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Wait. Like this is what it's like to have a guy that you kind of trust on late possessions. Oh, this is actually kind of awesome. So, you know, I'm sure there's still some jazz fans still hanging out there. And Darren Williams had a really good four or five year run, but even his best four or five year run wasn't as good as Paul's, unless you're gonna sit there and, and skew everything. Because I know I already know what the counter is. I just I believe Chris Paul exists as this amazing hall of fame player that because of circumstances, some that he can help some that he can't is going to end up having this terrible playoff resume. And I do believe that that'll happen where, where some players I go, that player is a loser and another player I'd be like, Chris Paul wasn't a loser to me, but he just ended up not winning.
0: When I had, so I was I don't know if you know this, but I used to be a writer and uh, in my column, which year in the late 2000s and stuff, yeah, yeah, some stuff for ESPN.com. I used to dabble in it, and uh, I used to have a lot of fun with the Chris Paul, Darren Williams thing because the Utah fans, because they would lose their fucking minds
1: and lose their minds like
0: militant. And <laughs> I rarely planted my flag in like a true trolling way with my column like that, but that was the one where I couldn't resist. And I had this column in uh, 2008, like four weeks into the season. Um, So it was a 20 questions question nine was, is there a dumber argument in sports than Chris Paul or Darren Williams, which is a theme I'd said. So I wrote, I argued before the season passionately that Paul was in a different league and earned myself a few death
1: threats from the Salt Lake City area, Prince's exactly. State Class of Utah. That was true. Right. Um, no, but it's, it's wrote, just true. Like The rest of us aren't making this up because I yeah, started yeah. ESPN in 06 and was dealing with the same stuff on the radio show. Go ahead. It was like, go fuck yourself. Uh, so then I wrote, check out their
0: 2009 stats through four weeks. And it was Chris Paul was 20 and 12, but Williams was hurt. So Williams' stats were like seven points, eight assists. He'd only played like two games. And then I was like, that's a (laughs) landslide. Can we stop arguing about this? Clearly a joke. (laughs) And the Utah fans lost their minds. Hey, Darren Williams is hurt. What the fuck? Uh, It was really always funny to do. So anyway, Chris Paul ends up winning that. And uh, when he falls to New Orleans at number four, an incredible moment. Because this is basically a draft with three signature guys. I'm including Bogut. And then it drops off a little into this Marvin Williams, who knows, are these guys going to make it? And New Orleans needed a centerpiece for ever. And then Chris Paul just falls into their lap. It was clear when it happened. This is like, wow, this is going to be a transformative pick, especially because now he has the chip on his shoulder. So all of that happens. Um, The Boga thing. We knew this was bad. When it happened, I actually would argue that he's probably turned out a little bit better than maybe our expectations were. By 2005, we had such a shit detector for centers going too high in an NBA draft who had some flaws. It was it was the all-time uh-oh. And with him, so I wrote, um, quote, I thought he was going to be the next Bill Wennington until last week when I found out he was only 20 years old. Now I'd like to upgrade that prediction to the poor man's Mike Jaminski. That's what I wrote that week in the draft. I thought he was going to be a bust. What did you think?
1: I did not. Uh, I liked him. I did. Now, I, you know, again, I like Marvin Williams too much. Um, I like Martell Webster too much. And I've got a couple other misses that we're going to get to. But I liked Bogut because of going back and, and looking at that stuff. He just... He's playing in a smarter offense, and we saw it later on at the end of his Golden State years. This guy just kind of understood what needed to be done all the time, and by his second year, you're realizing, okay, he's 12 and almost 10, and he his field goal percentage, like there's just all these numbers where you're going, okay, maybe he's not going to dominate like a Dwight Howard back in those times. Um, he, he's not going to be this Hall of Fame center, but this guy is really smart. He's really productive. And he was so good on defense for help stuff. Like he was, he was really smart and understood. Kind of like, all right, here's my assignment now. But what can I? What how can I cheat? How can I do some of the stuff? And the stuff he was doing with Golden State when he was actually healthy, which is a huge problem with his whole career. But Bogut was going to be really good if he doesn't have his arm shatter in that yeah. play. I think it's Amari Stoudemire's third team All NBA, which I had forgotten about. And so, yeah, on the redraft, you still have to factor in he couldn't stay healthy from that moment on, but he was if healthy, he was trending towards a guy that was going to make I think a lot of all star games two thousand eight to two
0: thousand eleven. He's fourteen and ten with two point one blocks a game, thirteen mo Bay in two thousand and ten. The defense was the underrated piece to him. He was a very good old school defensive center when he could move around, and he could use both of his arms correctly. And the, the issue with him was just keeping him on the court. The elbow injury was a fluke, but then it was a I, mess.
1: I, I kept forgetting how bad it kept getting after that.
0: Yeah. It, yeah. All kinds of shit happened. What I liked about him was defensively, he could be the anchor and then offensively he was a, he, you know, the assist don't back it up as much as I thought, but I, I always thought he had a nice feel for the game, the moving, and that's why he, he does. fit in so well with golden state. Um, I don't know if he could have been the best player on a title team but I think he could have been the second best player if he had stayed healthy. And that was way more than I thought was expecting in 05. And it's too bad. That's a, it's an underrated sucky injury because again, he's 20 in this draft and he didn't have like, you know, he ended up having leg issues later, but that elbow thing is a fluke that could have happened to any player in the league. And it's just uh it's just a bummer. So we have that. Um, we should mention this was the last draft with high school picks. That's right. Gerald Green. Uh, it, Gerald Green, Martel Webster, and then the most successful one of all these guys, Lou Williams, oh, who I ends up going midway say, through the second round, who's, I think, still like 27 years old, even though he's been in the league for 16 years. And then the other, uh, the other major subplot, which was just kind of amazing.
1: Andre Blatch? Anyone,
0: which one? Andre Blatch? Cool. No. The Granger thing was incredible as it was happening cause he was really good in college and he was so clearly, so clearly an NBA player. It was just like, this is exactly the type of player who succeeds. I thought he was going to go like in the six to nine range. And when I'm doing the draft, I'm when I did the draft diary, you could see me. I'm just going nuts as it's going along. Um, Rob Babcock, the Toronto GM, who drafted Ra- Rafael Ruggio in 2004 over Andre Gudawa famously covered that one in this one. He takes Charlie-, Charlie, Villanueva with his top 10 pick already had Chris Bosch had already taken a Ruggio the year before says, fuck it passes on Granger. And then he's up again at 16 Granger's still on the board. And he's like, ah, I like this Joey Graham. I'm going to take him. So pass Toronto passes him twice, twice. Um, (laughs) the other thing that's amazing, the Lakers and Clippers pass him. The Lakers take Bynum, which we'll get to with the 10th pick. He was 17 years old, 290 pounds center. And this was at a time when they had just missed the playoffs and Kobe's just pissed that his teammates aren't good enough. The whole thing. And then they take this guy who's a three-year project and everyone's like, oh, they're going to trade Kobe. If they had taken Granger on top of, uh, and kept Karam Butler, who they traded for Kwame Brown, and they already had Odom, that's actually a pretty good foundation, right? Granger, Odom, Karam Butler, and Kobe. But they fucked it up for him. And somehow Mitch Kupchak doesn't get, uh, you know, the Bynum thing pays off later, I guess. But I would rather Adina Granger.
1: I'm not going to knock Mitch for Bynum because he had the, the vision to go ahead and take this kid who was like a different kind of recruit. I mean, apparently he was supposed to go to UConn. Um, there's always these stories. You'd be like, yeah, this guy was supposed to go there. and be like, okay, but he didn't. So, you know, what, right. what, are, we, what are we doing here? Um, I would give the Lakers and Mitch credit for taking Bynum there instead of Granger. But Granger falling, it didn't make any sense. And I was at the Celtics draft party that night. I was doing the live broadcast for the Celtics radio station. And the... The Granger falling thing, I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to follow the Celtics. He's going to follow the Celtics. Like, this is incredible. And then he goes that one spot before him. And Granger has a five-year run. That's awesome. Like, it's awesome. We're talking 20-plus. He has 25 in one of those seasons. And he's exactly what you would want before the injuries to just take him over. And then, you know, Paul George comes onto the scene, too. But I was so excited, hoping that they were going to get him. And then I had heard, that like, when Gerald Green was still there and Granger goes, they are like, ah, oh, shit, like, now what are we going to do? And it was kind of like a last minute But there's thing. a better story than that. Do you know the story? Well, I know there's two versions of the story and it ended up, well, you tell yours and I'll tell mine because mine's mine sucks for me. So go ahead. I heard they were on the
0: phone with Bird who's running Indiana because they the, they were moving up, I think for Gerald Green, assuming Granger was going to go to Toronto at 16. And they're talking to him Toronto takes Graham and bird starts laughing. Is like, I got to go. We just got Danny Granger and hangs <laughs> up because they uh, both sides had thought Toronto was taking him, And then Indiana's like, well, we're not taking a high schooler. Um, so Boston was going to flip picks with them, I think, and throw in something. And, and then the Danny Granger thing happened. So that doesn't sound like that's a made up story.
1: No, that sounds pretty good. I that ended sounds up doing, realistic. What was your story? I ended up doing TV. You know, what? I'm confusing years. I'm confusing the Al Jefferson. So it was the year before. Yeah, Ainge, Ainge liked me. He was unbelievable. Like because I used to play hoops at their facility but not not the actual team part of it they were connected to an open it was a new york sports club it was his boss's sports club it was in waltham and one of my favorite things in the world to do would be like after i get off of work i would just go and, and get shots up and then every now and then like somebody from the celtics would walk by because it'd be connecting offices and they'd make fun of my jumper or you know whatever yeah like you're going a little hard on your post work dude you're like 30 and no one cares and you're not playing against anybody <laughs> so what what's your problem you like leon when- and above the rib yeah, like they're just like, who's this loser working on his post footwork and like pretending somebody's guarding him? Because uh, no one was. And Ainge would would have me up and he was awesome to me because if it was a before the draft, we, we'd talk about some players and he would just straight up. I'd be like, well, what about like Roko Leniukic? Should he be like, well, if he's there at 45, he's going to be there at 46. You know, that would be, and I don't even remember if that was the one. But I went out and did TV. It was the Jefferson pick now that I remember. And somebody else from the team had said, hey, whenever we look at high school players, we want them to have this height, this length, this rebounding rate. There's like all these boxes that you have to check. So I went on TV and was like, well, you know, when the Celtics look at at high school kids, they've got to check these boxes. And Ainge happened to be seeing it. And then Ainge told somebody else on the staff, he's like, by the way, who told you that thing about what we do with high school guys? And I was like, well, I'm not going to tell you who else told me. But he was like, Ainge was laughing at you watching that in the back room, being like, what the fuck? He was like, why is Rosillo talking like who? Why would he say that? Like, I don't. And what you don't realize until you get older is that just because somebody works for a team, it doesn't mean that the guy making the decision listens to everybody else in the team. Right. And if there's one thing you've learned about Ainge over the years, which I'm sure you have too, is that you could work with Ainge. You can be on the staff. But Ainge ultimately does whatever he wants to do. And he doesn't always share everything with his staff. So um, That's how I run the ringer. It is. But it made me look like an idiot. And honestly, I was just young and a team official had said these are some of the things it wasn't even like it was some big secret it was just these are some of the things we look for so I was like oh that that's cool I'll go on can I share that Be like yeah it's not a big deal and it was the Al Jefferson pick but the green pick I have one other thing from that I'll I know I'm rambling here but you'll like this Ike Diago went ninth to Golden State yeah Ike and
0: old school he he was just 30 years too late in 1972, Ike has
1: a good career. He's in the league for 11 years. So, Perkins and Delaney West, and all those guys that had just been drafted uh, the year prior, right? Or two years prior, yeah. they came out because the Celtics put on this massive party at this facility. And it was a great spread, tons of food. And Perk and Delaney come out and start loading up on food. Yeah. Like, and they're not dressed up at all. They're just like grab trays, load it up with food, and let's go in the back and get out of here. Like we're not here to do the meet and greet that's, and take pictures. By the way, that's what nephew Kyle does at Ringer parties. Same, exactly. same fucking move. Same it's, move. It's perfect. Like you remember how young these guys are. And Ike Diago goes ninth, and Perk is right next to us, but he's watching like the ESPN feed. And Perk goes, Boy, went, lottery. His game is doo-doo. <laughs> like, and he was, he had this look on his face. And it was so damn funny. Perk is well, looking right. at it. And he's looking at Delotti, And he's like, yo, bo- boy went lottery. Boy went lottery. Yo, he, his, his game is doo-doo, doo-doo. And, he, and I mean, just, he was, couldn't believe that Ike Diago went ninth. And you're right. Great scouting report from Perk. Ike, doo-doo
0: Diago. Well, another doo doo guy in this draft was uh, Fran Vasquez. <laughs> I can't, I can't emphasize strongly enough how bad the GMs were in the mid two thousands before the internet really rounded into shape and started bullying bad decisions. Orlando took Fran Vasquez eleventh. Did not realize he was staying in Europe. Also didn't realize he was terrible. So, I mean, that was an easy Danny Granger pick. They had Dwight Howard. They you, you just could have added Danny Granger to all the guys that were on the 2009 Magic easily. And they took Fran Vasquez. It's kind of amazing they made the finals in 09 anyway with all the mistakes Otis Smith made over that five-year stretch. Uh, he wasn't involved in that one. I think, who was the Orlando GM before Otis? Is it still Gabriel? Yeah, it was John Gabriel, I think, at that point. Are we, are we well, sure?
1: Let me, let's just make well, sure. How about so this? I don't...
0: Let's, let's say both of them were terrible uh,
1: and uh, we'll be covered. I don't know. Otis is like another level. Um, <laughs> oh, Otis gave, for, what did he get? He gave Lewis $110
0: billion or whatever he gave him. Uh, cu- one more thing about this draft, big picture standpoint. Oh, uh, wait a
1: minute. Wait a minute. Gabriel was gone by then. Gabriel was oh, let Otis. go during a 19-game losing streak during the 03-04 season. So that was Otis. Congrats to Otis. Can I add something to the Fran thing, though? I I know I'm jumping you here, but it it needs to be repeated, what you just said. This isn't the 1959 AFL draft where a dead guy gets drafted in in the 12th round. This is 2005. The internet's been running now for a while. Right. And and you're drafting somebody in the lottery who never plays an NBA minute. Well, let's.
0: Let's actually go. Let's we'll give people the the draft so they can get a feel for it. Milwaukee goes first with Bogut. Atlanta second, Marvin Williams. Utah third, trades up. Darren Williams. Chris Paul goes fourth to New Orleans. Raymond Felton goes to Charlotte, five, which we were all fine with at the time. Webster to Portland at six. <laughs> Toronto takes Charlie Villanueva seventh. Um. The Knicks are on the clock at eight. And in the draft hour, I write the new most exciting words in sports are the Knicks are on the clock because Isaiah is running the draft at this point. They take Channing Fry, um, which turned out exactly how I think we all thought it was going to turn out. But they pass up Granger, which is hilarious. Golden State takes Ike Diago at number nine. Just basically just a complete miss. Lakers take Bynum at 10. Vasquez goes 11 to Orlando. And then the Clippers are on the clock at 12 with a good team, a team that's about to be a title contender, the 0 5 6 Clips. And they take Yaroslav,
1: Yaroslav Korolev over but, Granger. Who I kind of liked. Oh, you kind of <laughs> liked him. Yeah, I still, I still was susceptible to the Chad Ford flu. Yeah. yeah and, with the foreigners. And, and this is not an anti-Chad thing. We both love Chad. I'm going on with Chad uh, on his pod at some point here soon. But there was I I didn't hate Yar, Yaroslav Korolev's length.
0: Well, I'll tell you, um, as I mentioned every time we do the redraftables, I got my clipper season tickets in '4 and got to know some of the people behind the scenes. When they did this pick, they were all like, "That's Dunlevy's guy. Dunlevy's convinced he's going to be, you know, a transformative guy for us." And I was like, "You know who would have been good, Danny Granger? <laughs> 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 Very aware that that guy's good. So you have that, and then even better. Sean May goes 14. I'm sorry, 13 13. to Charlotte. So Charlotte's just like, we know everybody hates us. We're just taking UNC guys. Rashad McCants, who is the head case of this draft. He goes 14 to Minnesota. And now the Danny Granger thing has reached the point where we're all going. Does this guy, is there something wrong with him? Did he commit a crime we don't know about? Does he fail a drug test? Like what's happening? Uh, New Jersey who it should be mentioned have Vince Carter and Jason Kidd and Richard Jefferson, and are like, not a contender, but they're in the mix. They're one guy away from being really interesting. They pass up Granger. They take Antoine Wright. Toronto passes him up again, takes Joey Graham, and he ends up falling to uh, Indiana at 17. So uh, let me tell you something. None of this made sense as it was happening. The other reason people in NBA circles really like this draft is NBA guys love drafts where there's a lot of value late And if you look at this draft from the 25th pick on, maybe uh, 28th pick, Jan Mahimni goes 28, David Lee goes 30, Brandon Bass 33, CJ Miles 34, Irian Ilyasova 36, Toryoff 37, Monte Ellis 40, Lou Williams 43. Those are like NBA players. I just listed eight guys that went 28 or later, and some guys who made real money. Ryan Gomes.
1: played eight oh, years. Oh, yeah, Ryan Gomes. Amir Johnson yeah, Amir, goes 56. Amir Johnson. I mean, when you start looking at some of the, the advanced stuff on this draft class, like Amir Johnson keeps popping up towards the top. So when I was thinking on the redraft, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not just going to marry myself to the analytics because Amir Johnson played a million years because he's still not as impactful as some of these other guys. Mikhail Jelabel, who I loved breaking him down. This is when I started getting access to the Euros, too, and I'd watch him on my own. And I was like, this Jelabel right. guy's, uh, he's fun a Chris Taft. I think I may have had a little Chris Taft stock from Pitt even. Well, and we'll we get to the d- guy we yeah. still,
0: we still haven't gotten up, given up on later. Orion Green. Um, you loved Orion Green a couple years. No doubt. Did, it couldn't shoot. I know. I like my guards to be able to shoot. So from a wind share standpoint, sure Chris Paul it. doubles the next highest total of anyone else in this draft. Shockingly, Marcin Gortat, sixth highest win shares of anyone in this draft. We covered everything, so I'm ready. I don't ready think to that's do shocking.
1: Sixth, I well, I don't think it is. We're going to get into Gortat, but Gortat comes out of this higher. He's party. He better be in your lottery. He has to be in your lottery on the redraft here. I feel like there was one it, other story. I don't he, know. He, by the way, we I didn't here, mention
0: but. him. He went 57th. Uh, from a comedy standpoint, we mentioned a lot of the funny stuff. I wrote New Orleans when Chris Paul got drafted. New Orleans happily grabs Chris Paul at the fourth pick, partly because he's the best player in the draft, partly because he's one of the four people in this draft who can handle playing in New Orleans, which turned out to be true. Uh, from a comedy standpoint, Stu Scott interviewed Darren Williams and finished the interview by saying, by throwing it back to Mike Tarico and saying, Mike, seven tattoos on this man. Still character all the time. Character. And Darren Williams is kind of like, what the fuck? And it got thrown back. I
1: still don't know what what happened there. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. That's so weird. It's so weird. And, the, and uh, the fact that Stern couldn't learn the name. And it wasn't like it was Yurislav Korolev. It was Darren right. Williams. And it's just forever. Yeah. I, I still say Duran is a joke. Right. John
0: Nash explained the Webster thing. Here's his actual quote. First of all, we think we took an outstanding young man. He's a terrific character. Somebody that the community of Portland could be proud of, in addition to a very good player. So you know you're in trouble when when you have a top six pick, basically, and it's just character is the number one reason. And then the only other really funny one, they had a must-improve in '04 04 and 05. Jan Mahimney went 28th, and his most his most improved was must
1: improve overall skills not wrong, yeah. not wrong though uh, can I add to the John Nash thing because John yeah. Nash, who had no reason to be nice to me after I, I made an eighty six sixers joke draft um, at mm. his expense on a TV show at the same time, and every it was everybody was it was so nasty of me to do it that people were on the set were like whoa dude and then i followed up with nash and he was like look there's things you don't understand this is why we did this trade whatever i was like yeah you still traded the number one pick in door you could have had barkley moses malone and brad doherty in your front line and instead you didn't you'd have been good so i don't think i don't think i'm wrong but he he made an explanation and it was it was cool paul allen i believe back then was absolutely running the draft and had been upset because of the things you brought up and they had a video feed inside the Portland War Room that night. And they make the Martell trade. Nash explains it. But when they did that and they ended up with Linus Claes and they made the trade back with Denver for Jarrett Jack. So they ended up getting their point guard and they argued that, hey, you know what? We actually think there's a chance Jarrett Jack could be better than any of these. The way Paul Allen did like a Ooh, like excited, double, weird, awkward, wanting to get into a high five. I go, this draft's a disaster. Just the, based yeah. on the celebration,
0: we didn't get Chris Paul, but where do you see Jared Jack? An actual uh, quote from Portland. All right, so we're doing the uh, we're doing the redraft. We have a half hour to do this. I right, for for a scrap rating for this draft it was a four out of ten. Pretty pretty conventional, other than the uh, Marvel Williams thing and Granger falling. I'll give you the first pick. I know you're taking Chris Paul. Um. Unless you're going to shock me and take uh, Lou Williams.
1: Um, No, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pull a Portland here. The Chris Paul thing historically, it's, it's not even, I mean, there's, there's nothing to do here other than take Chris Paul and keep moving. How many
0: playoff series total has Chris Paul won in his entire career? Uh, Seven. Right. Correct.
1: Average 21 and 9 in the playoffs. His numbers are awesome in the playoffs, and it sucks. It sucks so bad. They beat the Spurs in that seven game thing where the Spurs in normal years would have been a much higher seed. That's a great team that they beat in the first round. He hits the game winning layup, and I get it. Like when we count wins and we count losses, he doesn't hold up. I just. I believe there are coaches that are great coaches that have bad records for a bunch of reasons. I am in the Chris Paul camp that he's an amazing, amazing player who's not a loser, who's not a big stat losing player. I think he's a big stat player who hasn't won, and I will go to the grave with that thought. So you're saying he's the Andy Reid of point guards. It's going to happen for him still at some point. Well, unfortunately, he doesn't get to like play for another 20 years. Um, yeah, true. But... Um, well, I, so know, I he, can't, has, I can't do it anymore. You know what I mean. So I get, I get everybody rolling their eyes as I say this, and that's fine. Two
0: of the biggest playoff collapses of this decade: 2014 OKC, an absolutely inexplicable falling apart in, uh, I think it was Game Four, where he just throws the ball away. a yeah, couple the turnover. times. and it's yep. it's so bad. And then the 2015 against the Rockets, when Harden gets pulled, the series is over. And then the Rockets just come back and nobody on the Clipper side, most notably Chris, can calm it down as it's happening. Those are going to go in his NBA gravestone unless he wins the title. Then the 2018, he gets hurt right when it seems like they are going to flip the script on the Warriors. And that's the great what if of his career, other than the Lakers trade that doesn't go through, which I think for him, it's probably a good thing that didn't go through. He's catching Kobe at the tail end of his prime. And a year of Dwight Howard, which didn't go well, and Gasol in the tail end, and you know, I, I think, I don't, I think it the going to the Clippers probably was better for him. The other thing with Chris Paul, we mentioned four first team All NBA, three second, one third. At the MVP finishes are really impressive. He was second in two thousand eight, he was third in two thousand twelve, and fourth in two thousand fourteen. For point guard, that's just. Way up there. So if you're you're making the case for him versus Isaiah and some of the other point guard greats, like the fact that three different years he
1: was considered one of the four best guys in the league, it's legit. And if you're going to do... The Houston thing is inexplicable. Like you said, it's on him forever. Um, I hold other people's collapses against them. And it makes it sound like I'm just making excuses and not being consistent when I... I don't do it with Chris Paul as much, but if you're going to do, if you're going to do those, you got to bring up like two Blake injuries where all of a sudden it's like, it just looks like, Hey, how come you guys lost those series against those other teams? You're like, well, cause Blake went down again. Right. And that's it's a fair. real thing. Uh, career wise
0: mention the advanced metrics just really quickly. First offensive rating, fourth, wind share 48. This is all time. Fourth and assists per game, ninth and PR eighth and steals eighth and vorp advanced metrics. Love Chris Paul. All right. Number two, Darren Williams. I'm still taking him. You have to. Uh, the trade, we, we mentioned all the Darren Williams stuff except for the trade. But his his 07 to 13 stretch, even including the first Brooklyn year, he's just really good and relevant. But he ends up getting traded for Derek Favors, who had been the number two pick in the previous draft, I think, or – he, he was still pretty young. So it was almost like getting a top three ladder pick. No, oh, yeah. Devin yeah. Har- absolutely. Devin Harris, who was a real guy cash, a 2011 first round pick that ended up being top three Enos Cantor. And then a 2013 first round pick, which became uh George, Georgie Dang. Um, that was a huge haul and a shocking NBA trade. That was one of those trades. I actually remember where I was when I heard that trade. Cause it came out of nowhere. Nobody knew he was available. He had just started a feud a little bit with Jerry Sloan and Utah was like, you're leaving in a year and a half. Fuck this. This was right at the beginning of this player empowerment decade. And Utah, I think, did the best job of anyone of being proactive and being like, oh, you're leaving. You're going to be a problem. We're cutting ties right now and getting as much as we can. It was really smart.
1: It's a good trade. It was incredibly smart and it's an unbelievable haul. And at the time, like I thought, favors you know who's had a decent career i thought he would be more if you're going to talk too. about you know guys you'd have stock in i mean i'd given up on him once i'd just seen enough like hey the, the next the next step that you want him to get that doesn't exist for him um and then you end up with the top three pick in Canner, who Canner early on you know i'd still put Canner up there as far as offensive skills around the rim it's just un unbelievable he just he can't he can't guard anyone he just he gets abused in certain matchups and i just love that utah because you know, Utah's like, look, we're not getting any free agents in here. It's just it's just, just such a well run organization. And they're like, all right, we're ready, we're ready to bounce on this. And then at the same time, like the the New Jersey-Brooklyn thing, you go, if you can get your hands on Darren Williams, who again still had really good years there, but when it was over, it was over immediately. It was like he's over at 29, right? Like 29, just done. He has a little bit of a resurgence as like a three-point shooter. I do remember when what was it, Cleveland added him in 17. And there was actually people being like, oh, the balance of power may have shifted now. And it's like, once again, evidence exhibit 402 of how often the buyout guys do nothing. And everybody gets so excited about it. And
0: also how, how, how many people just don't actually watch basketball. Great point. It was like, oh, the Cavs, D-Will. It's like, you guys fucking watch basketball? He's been done for three years. What are you getting? It was like when there the was... Celtics got Stefan Marbury that time. It's like, what are we
1: getting? The guy's done. There's a fork in them. Um, they also got Bogut, and I'm telling you, this is not this is not a few eggs. This is some serious blue checks out there that had said on their shows that adding Bogut and Darren Williams had shifted Cleveland to be the favorites from the, the 2017 Warriors, who were right. probably the best team ever. And I, I'm like, and you're you're right. I mean, this is the part where you and I can get really passionate about certain points that we have because we know we'd never say something like that because we're still watching the fucking games. <laughs> it's pretty rough. Um, yeah, I remember
0: one of the ones was the... Vergeau was another one. There's just certain ones where at some point somebody got excited because somebody picked up Vergeau. It's like, the guy can't stand the
1: floor. What do you... And, and just are for he, anybody... What are you guys excited it, like, about? May say... Because remember, Bogut played one minute for Cleveland. But do you really think had Bogut played more minutes for Cleveland and not going to like the, all the of a serious time, flips. Like, Yeah, because so I, I, I'm just expecting that potential counter. But the, it's, it's always like that GM survey where after the Celtics add Kyrie and Gordon Hayward and another top draft pick, but the Thunder had added Paul George, but then added Mello like right before the season started. The Thunder were labeled to have had the best offseason by the GMs, by GMs, guys that do this. Because of the recency bias. And yeah. whenever that buyout post-trade deadline stuff happens, that recency bias of, oh my gosh, they added they added Shannon Brown? That's going to be a huge spark off the bench. Like, all right, they're probably my favorites in the West now. You go, everybody needs to relax. I think
0: uh, the Darren Williams thing 30, 40 years from now to people just learning about basketball, looking up different guys, I was. Don't ask me why. I mean, we're in middle of the almost the end of month three of the quarantine here. I was on an Otis Birdsong kind of deep dive the other the other night, just reading up on Otis, and was really fascinated the nineteen eighty one Kings, how a forty and forty two team almost made the NBA finals, and Otis Birdsong and Phil Ford was their star backcourt. Both guys get hurt in the playoffs. And they have Ernie Grunfeld at point guard with Scott Wedman, who's a small forward playing uh, playing guard. Anyway, I'm reading up all this, and then I'm looking at Otis Birdsong, who was like the second pick in the draft, who made like four all-star teams, who's like 25 a game one year, um, gets signed by uh, the Nets to a huge contract. You look at his field goal percentage, it's like 55 a game. Like he has this eight-year run where you're like, wow, that guy was – Really like shockingly good. Most famously, they beat the 84 Sixers the year after the 83 Sixers won the title. Him, Michael Ray Richardson, Buck Williams, GMO, they upset the Sixers. And then he just, he's kind of gone. And I feel like that's how people will look at Darren Williams, you know, 30 years from now. Be like this other guy in this draft, Darren Williams, you look at his stats from 07 to 13. Man, he made two All NBAs because. Other than that, there will be no Darren Williams conversations for the next thirty years. It's really surprising. I don't think that's I wouldn't have expected that.
1: Yeah, I, I don't I don't like, you know, because I've I had to argue Paul so much that it just always turns into you taking apart the other guy. But, you know, those things of like, well, wow, look what he's done in the playoffs. You're like one Western Conference Finals appearance, and now all of a sudden this guy's Magic Johnson. Like, come on. Yeah. You know, he was good though. I will say he was, he was really good. He, he was really good. Physical point guard. And, and I, I remember Nash. That hard crossover dribble in transition, and he would go and he would always get the free throws. It was like, what are you supposed to do with this guy? The hair was a red
0: flag. I remember talking to Nash once in 09 range about he was saying how Barron was the hardest guy for him to guard because Barron was just like, you know, trying to tackle a running back. And he was saying how Darren Williams was the other guy like that, where you just really felt it after you played those guys. We don't we don't really have, do we have a physical? point guard like that right now, like a punishing, I don't feel like that kind of guy's in the league right now, unless I'm blanking. Everybody is more in like that Dame Lillard type of body now for that position. They're more like the shooters and Well, I mean, do, do with Harden?
1: I mean, Harden.
0: I guess, yeah. So if Harden, if you consider him a point guard, I guess that would be the legacy. Yeah,
1: because I mean, now it's a free for all. But remember this though, too, the Darren Williams stuff with all those three guards in Illinois, because it was kind of like, wait a minute, you know, because he wasn't always the go-to guy in that really good team. True. And it's like, wait, he's going to be the best player? And he was. I mean, it, it wasn't close between him and Luther Head and D Brown. But there was always that body type thing. And I also think complexion always comes into these NBA comps. We just can't help ourselves, the science of it, where it was yeah. like, oh, he's Jason Kidd. And my thing with Jason Kidd was I don't want to hear anybody is yeah, Jason Kidd. Because nobody's Jason Kidd. You're on the clock number three. I'm going Bogut. Wow. Okay. Um, Now, the part of my argument here is, because health is not in my favor, but when he went to Golden State and they ended up becoming good, he just didn't take any shots anymore because there were no shots for him. Yeah. And he would have been a 15 to 17, 10 rebound guy who always plays great defense to somebody who was a terrific passer, understood all the complexities, understood the angles, understood, again, help defense versus ISO defense. Set a million nasty screens. I mean, he's a dirty player in the way you'd want a player to be dirty, but he is. And I just, I love his game. And I think, I think somewhere else with a second part of his career, that's not a, a you know, no available shot situation like Golden State, he still could have put up some points, but there's a real weird fall off in this draft where I I feel like there's a million wrong answers. And that may be another one, but. Uh, there's no one other than him like I know what some of the stats say historically and there's all these other guys we are going to go over but I like Bogut as a piece well when did he
0: get hurt he got hurt in that in the Cleveland series right about halfway through the finals in 2016 yeah he doesn't play in six and seven Um, it's 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 like an underrated, it's not why you lost the finals, but it kind of has to be brought up much like Perkins in 2010. There's these little tiny injuries that it's not to a key guy. So it doesn't get mentioned, but you know, if he is able to play in that seventh game, they don't have to play Festus Ezeli, Who's well, they don't They, don't, wreck. Lose. they yeah. don't
1: lose. Cause Ezeli is an absolute mess in that, so bad. In that game. Yeah. <sighs> wow. I had Bogut on my board later. I know.
0: I expect to be ridiculed. That's fine. <laughs> no, I had him. I had him either
1: fifth or sixth. Um, I, we look, should mention it's not great. The rest of this is not great. It, it's picking through a lot of stuff that you have. You're going to have problems with.
0: So if if the teams at the time had listened to us, Milwaukee would have taken Chris Paul. Atlanta would have taken Darren Williams. And then you have Utah taking Bogut. That would have been like a science experiment. Although maybe Utah doesn't trade up at that point. So maybe that's Portland instead. All right, with the fourth pick.
1: Maybe they give up more for Bogut.
0: Danny Granger, who ends up going 17th. This pick would be for New Orleans. But uh, you mentioned his five-year run. From 08 to 2012, this is crazy. He's 22 and 5. His percentages are 43, 39 from three, and 86 free throw. He's averaging almost six threes a game. His 2009 NBA season is about as modern of a 2000s season as you can find. 25.8 points, 45% field goal, 40% three, 88% free throw. And he averages 6.73 attempts and almost seven free throw attempts. So now it's like, if you just put that guy into 2020 and he's 10 and 10 with those, he's probably a 30 point score. What's crazy is he doesn't make the NBA team that year. Cause you have LeBron, you have Dirk, you have Paul Pierce, who was great that season. Duncan still tr- chugging along Gasol, really good season where the Lakers win the title. And then one of Carmelo's best seasons. Oh nine. So he gets bumped from that. And. It's a bummer because that, you know, sometimes the All-NBA works that way. But to me, he's one of the best 10 to 12 guys in the league that season. We should mention the other thing with him. You know, he gets hurt and it's a really good LeBron what if. LeBron had some, a couple lucky things happen to him along the way. And I think this was one of them. That Indiana team, which kind of went at them in 2012, the last year Granger was healthy. And then in 2013, George had gone another level but Granger's hurt. He's a, he's, so he plays five games. S- yeah. And he's, and he's not Granger anymore. And if you had it's the over. real Granger in that series, I think they could have beat Miami. Cause I think Miami was pretty worn down at that point from the streak from three straight years with the bullseye. They were kind of ready to be had as the Spurs almost got them the next round. But if you put vintage
1: Granger in that series, I think that's a toss up. I really do. Yeah, because the Granger thing, when he's over and he plays five games at 12-13, and what you just said is a totally fair point. I mean, it doesn't mean you're not saying it's 100%, but it's certainly it's worthy of bringing up. Yeah, yeah, I think it is because that Pacers team did a really good job. And remember how weird those Pacers series were, too, because it was like, I don't know anybody has ever gone as valuable to as, as unvaluable as Roy Hibbert. I don't know that anybody's ever had a quicker transition to, wow, look how terrific this guy is in this matchup, to you're going to be out of the league. Like, it felt league like League flipped on him. Totally.
0: And by the way, Granger was another one that we were talking about earlier. Like, remember when I think the Clippers signed him? People like, Danny Granger. It's like you guys aren't watching basketball. He can't move anymore. Yeah, but everybody like, he, he was that. on one
1: leg. It everybody, every, every every one of these players that you go through whose career is over quicker than you think, there's like three stops from teams that get you in to like make sure you're done. And as long as it isn't yeah. too expensive, I don't know that I blame anybody. But you know, 29, plays five games, it's over. He goes from 19-6 a game, 25-8, 24-25, or 20.5. I'm, I don't know I'm doing tenths of a point here. 19 a game to never over double figures again. And the oddity for Granger, too, is that the team you were the star on, you're immediately replaced by a better version of, like, the same body type, a bigger, more athletic, a Paul George who's even a better player. And you're like, oh, okay. So, in a way, it worked out for the Pacers. Uh, which is rare. I mean, it's so rare to come back and be like, now I just lost my job because I'm hurt and I'm not going to be as good, but also not gonna get the opportunity because they just came up with like the the Terminator 2 version of me. It's
0: what they should have had on paper, is a lot like what the Celtics have with Jalen and Tatum, where you could have these two interchangeable wings. George a better defender, but they could have had LeBron could have been dealing with that for the rest of the decade. These two guys on the same team both of whom could guard him, who are averaging 45 to 50 points a game.
1: It's a, it's a tough one. Um, or like a Twan-Brandon-Hunter thing. Stop it. You're on the clock at five. So you would have taken Granger three, like no question.
0: Yeah, because I, I think okay. the, the peak of Granger was, I think, really, really, really elite um, and and should have been all NBA elite. Was, he just had bad luck that year.
1: Okay, uh, totally fair. And maybe it's the right answer. I guess I'm giving Bogut the bump for the second part no, of No, I'm, I'm with you on Bogut. I, yeah.
0: I, I think he's now underrated as the years pass. Who do you have at number five?
1: I'm going Lou Williams. Yep. And it's just an overwhelming resume of, of stuff here. He's only behind Paul and Monte Ellis points-wise. Um, the analytics like him in this group. He's only behind Paul and Deron Williams. And, you know, <laughs> look, Lou has his, his flaws, but he's, he's still getting you buckets and he's still somebody who can come in and get you like 15 and a quarter in a game that matters. And yes, defense is not something he's ever really been interested in. And I think there are even arguments against like how many shots can we really give this guy if he's going to mail it into in so many different parts, but the longevity part of this still going the way he is, uh, this is, this might be the lowest Lou Williams could go for a
0: while. He was like Jamal Crawford with bad PR. Like, like Jamal Crawford had the best PR team and it was, uh, he became overrated and Lou Williams was kind of the stealth guy. He bounces around, you know, he played for six teams. He has two years on the Lakers that have just been like basically erased from history. Uh, I remember when Houston traded for him, that was when I was like, Oh, is there like some advanced metric stuff with him? And you go and you look at Lou Williams 2017 season where he takes five and a half threes a game, but is also getting to the line six times a game. And he was like that weird three-point attempt, free throw attempt hybrid. I think what's strange about him is you don't usually see somebody take 10 years to kind of become the guy that they became. Because from 2015 to 2020 right now, he averages 18 and four a game, 36% from three. He's over five for attempts for threes and uh, free throws. And there's really no indication that that's going to happen from 06 to 2015. He gets better as the league moves in his favor. But it's not no. like he changed. His <laughs> style didn't change. His body didn't change. It's just the league started doing things that he was good at. Looking
1: at his stat log on basketball reference is... I, I don't know who else is like this. First of, of all, the fact that he's, that he's 33 doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, He was 22... A game for a full season, just two seasons ago, and that's his career high. So his career high was after 12 years in the league. Like you know, whenever people show like the Kawhi graphic, where it's like these four years in a row, his scoring went up all four years. Like this dude, I mean Lou, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. Like players like this, they don't have no people don't have careers like this, and so. I feel like this pick is more out of respect. And the fact that I still, like, why would he stop getting buckets? It's not like he's going to be, like, he's still going to be getting buckets for a couple years here. Yeah, the longevity
0: makes it a no-brainer. I'm with you. Uh, For the sixth pick, David Lee and Monte Ellis are still on the board. And it's tough because both guys are relics from a different era of basketball. I think Monte has to get the nod here. Even though David Lee made two all-star teams, David Lee was 18 and 11 for, from 09 to 2014. He was a good energy guy off the bench. But Monte averaged 25.5 points a game in 2010. Monte was at the point where I I think he was considered a higher value to the Warriors than Curry was for at least a little bit there. Um, from 08 to 15, he averaged 21 a game. 45% field goal, could not shoot threes, is a guy who just kind of belongs to a different era. Um uh, and I'm not sure how that would have translated to how we play basketball now. I get maybe he would have worked on his shot, I don't know, but uh I just like him a tiny bit more than David Lee. So that's my case.
1: It's the right case and it's fitting that you paired him with David Lee because it's big numbers bad teams. And yep. every time David Lee, you go through all of those teams, David Lee's story is a great story and it's a great pick by Isaiah, but it's big numbers team always stunk. And the minute he's done in his golden state run is when they get good again. And again, that has more to do with the rest of the guys around him and Draymond coming in. Yeah, right. I mean, it's not like, oh, hey, stop playing David Lee and get all these other guys minutes. It's just no, we put together this really great roster. David Lee's run in Boston was probably one of the more surprising things ever because it was over. It was already over before he got there. And then talking to people in Boston were like, man, we were almost blown away by just it just was over. Like their expectations for him were higher. Even I wondered, like, hey, you know, did you just sort of do that deal to do the deal? And it's like, no, we thought we were going to get something out of him. And like you could tell Stevens was done with him pretty quickly, which was um, surprising. Well, remember- again.
0: Remember in 2013, him and Curry when they kind of revived the Warriors, Clay's coming on. They had traded Monte OS, they had Bogut, and I remember I had David Lee and Curry on my podcast together, and it really seemed like I think a lot of us liked David Lee. We liked his game. We'd always kind of wanted to see him on a good team. My dad always loved them. My dad loves like lefty rebounders, and uh, and by the mid 2000s, he just didn't make sense anymore for how basketball is played because you just spread the floor on him, and he has nobody to guard and you can't play him at center. He's not gonna be able to protect the rim. So he's almost like a casualty of where basketball went, but he did make two all-star teams.
1: So is he your seventh pick? I just want to stay on Monte one more point though, because is David Lee. Like you look at the numbers and you go, he went from 18 a game to like eight a game. Overnight with Golden State. But that one final year, he put up some big numbers with Golden State. They did win 51 games. So I want yeah. to be fair to him and bring that up because yeah, every he was, he was a good it was player. Like the nine seasons prior to that between New York and Golden State, nothing happens. And remember, it was a new owner syndrome there. Yeah. And Lake up, and they give David Lee all of this money and they're like, look at these numbers. Because I mean, he's just a, a 2010 machine for the first almost decade of his career. It's 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 crazy production. So I'll and, fun, and fun to
0: watch too. I always liked energy rebounder guys and he was lefty and he had nice touch around
1: the rim. And, you know, I, I, I was a huge fan. But I want to point out the Monte Ellis thing where you could argue taking him later because even though it's the production and I do think if you sort it by career points, is Ellis the second, I'm going to double check it here. I think Ellis is, that's right, he's still number two all time in this draft class career points. So Paul's at 18,700. Monte Ellis is just under 15,000 points for his career, which is second most of anyone in the class, as I said. But his usage rate, like he's one of those usage rate alarm guys where you're thinking, okay, so Monte Ellis had six seasons higher than the highest usage rate for a Magic Johnson. He's got usage rates that are beyond. This is this thing that you brought up and I've stayed with it. Like when people compare Barkley and Pippen and I go, usage rate alone, this is an embarrassing comp. It just is. Right. Because you think Barkley's usage rate would be through the roof and they're actually pretty close even though Pippen was playing with a guy like Jordan. And these stars of that era that were in the 20s and then Monte Ellis has guys, well, excuse me, he has seasons flirting with 30% usage rate, which is really, really high. And Monte Ellis taking 20, 22 shots a game for your team. It's cool. He scored a lot, but it probably means you suck.
0: Yeah. He's a 43% shooter who couldn't shoot threes. It's funny though. There were two things we didn't really fully understand until the 2014 range. And I think he's a casualty. I think Rudy Gay was a casualty and David Lee guys like that with Monte. You mentioned the usage rate thing. If his usage rates highlight that, that's one of the reasons he's getting stats. Doesn't mean you're going to win with it. And then he played a lot of minutes. Like he, he has seasons. He played 3000 minutes in a season. One, two, three, four times. He has these games where or these seasons where he's playing 40, 41 minutes a game. So if you look at his per 36 numbers, it's just not as impressive. Uh, so it's, there's a little bit of that Iverson thing where it's like, yeah, you're averaging 28 a game, but you're also playing 43 minutes a game. So it's, it's, it's bumped a little bit. Uh, But yeah, I think nowadays he would have had to have learned how to shoot threes. Back then, it didn't matter. All right, eighth pick. I'm taking Andrew Bynum because from 08 to 12, I'm getting a 15 and 10, 57% shooting, really hard guy to guard, and a guy who, before he just went sideways after the Lakers trade, uh, was a real asset and was really hard to defend and was an unusual guy. Now, he's... A, probably a nightmare in the locker room and all those things, but he was an asset for five years.
1: Slim Pickens the rest of the way, but Peek Bynum was really good, and it's better than the rest of these options we have. So he's on my list. This is his range for me. I don't hate it. Who do you have nine? I'm going to take Gortat because mm. Orlando didn't do anything with him the first three years of his career. I mean, it was yeah, it was terrible. And once he got out, they the wasted Reddick too. him, him and Reddick were basically like these appendages for them. It was weird. Would Reddick be third all time in NBA scoring behind Malone and Kareem? If they had played him, <laughs> uh, That's fair next <laughs> it's week, a uh, next There's week a on case. the pot. But I'm, t- Gortat doesn't even play. He doesn't even play. And then as soon as he goes to Phoenix, you're like, wait, did we just get rid of a, like a 15 and eight guy? And he starts putting up numbers. And with Washington, he has a nice little run. I mean, he only was out of the league two years ago. Um, actually, no, you go back one year ago with that final year with the Clippers. So i I go Gordon <laughs> he here, and I uh, is he it was. He
0: <laughs> He's a twelve and nine for seven years, 2011 to 17. Twelve and nine, not bad. Could set some picks. If there was any sort of fight or altercation, he'd defend whoever. I remember. Being surprised how well he blended in with uh, End of the Sun's Nash, that la those last like season or two seasons, whatever it was, where none of us had any idea he actually had basketball skills, and the ability to roll the basket and shit like that. And I don't know, I thought he was pretty good. I'm I'm down with that pick. I'm gonna take uh, with my take with my uh, I guess the tenth pick, Marvin Williams. I can't believe I'm doing it, but he made 109 million dollars. He's played in 1,066 games, and he's a career 36% three-point shooter. And as the kind of guy, if he's the seventh best guy in your rotation, it's not a disaster. Uh, Beloved teammate. Everybody loves him. Seems like he has friends all over the league. Uh, Really well-respected. And uh, (laughs) compared to what else I'm looking at here, I thought he had good value.
1: So who do you have at 11th? People are gonna think that's low for Marvin Williams because it's like, hey, you you realize he like he still scored, you know? Yeah, and he was no better than ever, like your third option, but maybe it's being held against. But this is this kind of feels right. I like your pick here. I think it's Thank right you. for him. Okay, eleventh pick. I'm going Ursan Ilyasova. I've always I, liked him. Yeah, I I think there's still some version of him that would have been better if people sort of understood him. If he did come along a little bit later, I mean, he really became kind of, he had some moments there where he really was that stretch four who I think could hold up at least physically with some bigger guys. And I think there's a better version of the Ursan Ilyasova story setting wise. Although, you know, I'm not saying he's lighting up, but it's the 11th pick and I'm going with him. 37% three point shooter.
0: I, I had him in that spot. Uh, nobody took Ray Felton yet. So I'm just going to take him because he's somebody that, uh, was able to run NBA teams and was in the mix a few times and was on teams that were relatively successful. And, and at the very least was an average starting point guard, which is better than basically anyone else I'm getting, unless you wanted to talk me into Jared Jack. So I'm taking him.
1: All first team. I slept with your girl face. Raymond (laughs) Felton. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) <laughs> like all first team captain of it a productive right, we have, player productive player i was going to take him next solid i mean not a terrible career he played 14 years
0: he played 971 games averaged at an 11 and five not a disaster all right we have one minute left two picks here's who's on the board jared jack jan Mahimney, channing fry brandon bass and chuck hayes who you taking
1: he was two ahead of his time. I'm not taking any of those guys. He's 24th overall in VORP, but I don't know that VORP loves him. Um, his nickname is Bulletproof, and it's Andre Blatch, who was wow. just... A, yeah, just an all-everything right setting. I mean, he actually scored one year 17 a game with eight boards and a couple assists and shot... Well, that year wasn't great from three. Um, he was never a great three-point shooter, but he's... Is he budget Magic Johnson? I don't know. I don't know if that's ever been brought up. And- I like that they extended him
0: and then amnestied him when the extension was kicking in. I thought that when the Wizards made history,
1: with that was, was delightful. The Wizards have had so many horrible stretches of decisions. Like I, that I, one's It's a really 30 bad. for 30 on that one. Yeah, that's what yeah. you should be doing with the ringer. We should be doing documentaries on what's the worst. On weirdo players. I, no, but it should just be What's the worst five to six year stretch any organization's ever had? That could be the next bracket. That's now I'm just giving you content for free. I'm not even gonna charge you for this. Is you just start going like, what's the worst possible scenario of 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 decision making? Could it get any worse? And the Wizards would be a one seed for That's this good. Stuff. Like a five, like a it should be like a presidential term, a four-year run. All right. Last Ooh, pick. There you go.
0: That's why you're in charge. Jared Jack, Jan Mahimney, Channing Frye, Brandon Bass, and Chuck Hayes, all still available. She I'm going to take, take Jared, Jared Jack only because we saw him succeed on playoff teams as a third guard and most notably with that Warriors team where Mark Jackson would actually play him kind of a little too much. So apologies to Jan Mahimney, Channing Fry, Brandon Bass, who had a, had a couple nice moments in the 2012 playoffs and uh Daryl favorite Chuck Hayes, who Daryl loved his, uh, Low post defense. That was it. The 2005 redraftables. Thanks for solo. Thanks for listening to the book of basketball 2.0 podcast. Stay tuned for 06, 07, 08, and 09 over the next couple weeks. See you here.